Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back to If Plants Could Talk. This is Garrett. I'm your host. This conversation took place on May 16th, 2022, with two very special guests joining me from Vancouver, BC, in Canada. I have Graft Punk, also known as Harrison, and my second guest, who will remain anonymous, we will refer to as John today, for the purposes of privacy and legality. These two men joined me to discuss psychoactive substances, uh, addiction and harm reduction. We talked about cultivation in the space of psilocybin and peyote. Uh, Graft Punk or Harrison has been doing quite a bit of experimentation and is very knowledgeable on psychoactive cacti. And it was really cool to hear all the different experiments that he's doing and uh, the wealth of knowledge that he has in his mind. And the same goes for John when it comes to the psilocybin mushrooms and cultivation. Uh, I was really happy to have these two guys together. It's been a while since I've had two guests on and uh, to be able to talk about something that I'm very passionate about and also something that I don't know, I realized uh, in the moment, I don't know a whole lot about, you know, despite being very passionate about both of these topics, uh, mycology and uh, psychedelics um, and cultivation of cacti, uh, they brought a lot of information on both ends that I wasn't familiar with. And uh, it was very impromptu and spontaneous. We had zero planning and just came up with the idea to do this episode the other day. So I really enjoyed it and I hope you guys do too. I am currently hosting a fundraiser. Just to remind you guys, I'm trying to crowdsource for this podcast. I have outlined in great detail the items that are required to go fully in-person and mobile capable for the podcast. It's just one other camera. I've purchased one of the cameras and uh, a controller for the cameras with a little foot pedal so that I can produce uh, live. I can also not only uh, host the show, but also um, operate the podcast itself and the cameras. So those are a couple items that I need. And I outlined what it would cost to cover the monthly overhead for the podcast to continue uh, all the things that I've been paying for for the last 15 months, but um, have been struggling to keep up with lately. So if you guys would be so kind as to check that out and possibly donate, any support is greatly appreciated. I don't think there's a minimum amount, but there might be. I'm not sure. Thank you to everyone that has supported so far, and I hope you guys enjoy. Here is John and Harrison. Today, I am here with Graft Punk, also known as Harrison, and our friend here, John. Joining me from Vancouver, Canada, correct? Mm-hmm. Well, welcome to the show, you guys. Thanks yeah, so much yeah. for having us. I guess Good the correct way would be to say Vancouver, BC, Canada, right? Uh, there are two Vancouvers, so. Oh, okay. <laughs> there might be more. I don't know. Okay, cool. The correct way would be to name the land that we have stolen and are currently existing on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, the guys had a big problem with that too, huh? Similar to what we have going on here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, um, what, what, I, I, you know, like, from what I understand that there are still like uh, a pockets like throughout the States in, I mean, I'm, I'm not like super well educated in this, but from what I understand, there's like certain pockets throughout the States where like, you'll notice indigenous culture is still like 
like very much intact, like depending on the nation. Yes. Um, but that is like less common in uh, in Canada. So, uh, there was definitely a much more like aggressive effort to either eradicate or, or assimilate indigenous peoples. So I see. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. the way we did it is we have reservations where they have their own their own designated land where our, our governmental law has no influence. They have their own uh, police forces and things like that. However, we do the the one influence we do have is uh, f financial. Like uh, the U.S. government provides funding to not all but most of the native tribes, I believe, native families, mm -hmm. and uh, like like some some of them. You get like a monthly um, amount from the U.S. government, I guess, as like reparations. But yeah, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's it's a horrific backstory that is definitely neglected. And uh, I know that like recently you guys had that uh, controversy of like hundreds of bodies being of children being dug up in Canada. Yeah. Residential yeah. schools. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's definitely um, a part. It, that's that's like a very like small fraction I, I think of like Canada's sort of like very dark underbelly in terms of like how we've treated indigenous people in the past. Yeah. I think yeah, it's quite heavy. I think it does have a lot to do with addiction and uh, the kind of tendrils that it has in our society as well, because uh, a lot of people that are kind of um, out and down in some of these downtown cores Mm -hmm. um, or have a history of that in their family, like either their parents or grandparents were in residential schools and it's um, just a generation of trauma. Oh, so there's like a, a ripple effect that can still be felt today in the manifesting in the form of addiction, you're saying? Definitely, yeah. Yeah, that's a problem yeah, very... here too. Uh, Native Americans are, and it's not to generalize, but are there? there's a lot of uh, addiction in particular, alcoholism and uh, gambling and um, meth currently now, and fentanyl is making its way into their land as well. And I, I've, tr I've treated actually a number, working as a counselor, I treated a number, an increasing number of uh, Native Americans that are um, struggling with substance abuse. Cool. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a tragedy. So yeah, where? Uh, why don't we start with either of you? Whoever would like to go first. Where Where are you from? What brought you to uh, what you're doing today? A little bit about okay. what you're doing today. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. Like, go ahead. Uh, go for it. Yeah, yeah. Harrison. Sure. So uh, I. I guess I could start it all off with like, you know, I've, I've always grown up, like even kind of like before the, the whole like plant boom that mm -hmm. we're, we're seeing right now. Um, you know, I, my dad has always had a really green thumb, you know, he's always had a garden going. One of his first jobs here was like working in a bonsai shop and it was really common growing up, you know, for him to just like um, have like some kind of bonsai that was like made from a cutting of a tree that had like some kind of sentimental value for him. Awesome. Um, so yeah, he still has like a Japanese maple that's like cut from a uh, backyard of, you know, an, an old house that we used to live in. Um, and so, yeah, it was really, and also, you know, like back in the day, like when it was really illegal and stuff, like he was, he was always like on the ball with grow shows and stuff like that. So, you know, a lot of that kind of like plant sort of like tuition, I think I picked up through him. Mm -hmm. He always liked to say that like, we come from 
a long line of farmers and stuff. Not too sure on the genealogy, but you know, family stuff. Um, yeah. That's cool. What's your ethnicity? If you don't mind me asking. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm mixed. I'm uh, Japanese, Italian, and French. Oh, I see. I see the yeah, Asian yeah. in you for sure. Yeah. Likewise. Are you, uh, I'm Filipino. I can... Yeah. Pacific oh, okay. Islander. Nice. Yeah. So you're, you're, I guess, uh, are you familiar with the term Hapa? Yeah. Hapa. I'm a Hapa. Yeah. 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 So I guess like Hapa is like, um, it's more of an umbrella term now. Right. But it used to just mean specifically half Japanese and half White. half Hawaiian, but it's branched out. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So now it's like, it's, it's like, you know, if you're like half Asian, then you can be loosely be called a Hapa, which I think is cool. Like, yeah. you know, um, as someone that's mixed and I'm sure that you can, you can relate to this too. It's, it's a little tricky to find a cultural identity. Um, mm-hmm. kind of, yeah. And so like to have a term like Hapa, I think is, is pretty empowering. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. Uh, anyways, like I've, you know, I've dealt with a, like a fair kind of like slew of just, um, you know, different like mental health issues, you know, I've had kind of my, my run-ins with addiction and that kind of thing. Um, and I believe it was in 2017, um, I managed to get my hands on some, uh, some dried peyote, um, and peyote is fully legal in Canada to grow, uh, and, you know, to grow and to consume, to have as an ornamental, what have you. You guys are lucky. Um, yeah, <laughs> you're telling me, man, you know, um, and so, uh, yeah, anyways, and, and, um, I had a fair amount of like, just issues kind of pent up. I mean, as a counselor, I'm sure you're pretty like well aware of how trauma works, right? Sort sure. of like things just kind of bundle and snowball and it's pretty easy to get lost in it. Um, and, and even though I was kind of like off the, you know, like, uh, off of, uh, off of the books when I did this, like I wasn't working through a doctor or anything like that. Um, sort of like what you're doing with, I I think you mentioned you're working with maps, correct? Yeah. Which I think is is awesome. Um, yeah, anyways, and and I, I tried peyote, um, and I had a relatively heavy trip and, I was absolutely like dumbfounded with with how effective it was for me in sort of um, having me step outside of all of that like internal chaos. Mm. Um, I like to explain it like it was it was really just like sitting on the shoulders of a giant that kind of like walked its way like through all of these issues that I had, and I was able to take more of um, more of like a the approach of like a gentle observer as opposed mm-hmm. to just like aggressively critiquing myself. Um, and, you know, of course, there's all like the fun stuff with the trip. There's like the visuals and feeling giddy and the waves of euphoria and all that. But at the end of it all, what I had to take away from it was it put my trauma in a new perspective. Um, and that was super valuable for me. And since then, you know, I, like, I've always had this. I feel like I've had this connection with that plant, um, especially like both, you know, in the beginning chemically, but now it's more so physically because um I, uh, you know, I mainly grow under artificial light. Like our, our conditions are obviously like not, you know, not on par with like the peyote's natural habitat. Sure. So finding ways around it. Um, and like, obviously a big part of this for me is the ornamental value. Um, beautiful, beautiful plants um, that really have been persecuted unjustly, um, in my opinion, like mainly throughout the States, obviously. Uh, so yeah, I'm growing a lot of it. Um, and you know, ornamentals and, and consumption is obviously a big side of it, um, for me. Um, and so, yeah, I, I really just want to be able to sort of share, um, 
you know, my experiences with it. And I also would like other people to have equally positive experiences uh, for themselves, you know, moving forward. A lot of what I'm doing is really in its infancy and based off of, you know, things like tangentially related studies um, as well. And I'm beginning to see like, you know, I, I feel like I'm, I'm onto uh, something that could be a sustainable model uh, for consumption, but this is just like sort of a microcosm of it. Um, you see where I'm coming from. No, I like, anyways, that's I like where this is going, yeah. and it's a fantastic yeah. introduction into. Since we have both of you guys, we'll we'll jump back and forth, and uh, I think sustainability when it comes to um, not only cultivation but especially consumption is going is really important, mm-hmm. as we like kind of cross over into this uh, more modern uh, outlook and approach to that plant and other psychedelic um, plants in, in particular slash substances. And um, yeah, that's a, that's a big factor here, especially in the United States, because we have people that are poaching them and, and to, for not only for consumption, but also for, for ornamental purposes. And it, it's not sustainable. And if we can, uh, spread that message that's great and um i would love to hear more about how and um how you've been integrating those experiences and um what the cultivation has been doing for you but let's jump over to john so john you are a mycologist correct and you come from a a family of mycologists i am an amateur mycologist that come from a family of amateur mycologists (laughs) and what that means is it's not a lack of knowledge, but it's that the love was so deep that we didn't have to go through or need to go through traditional means. And it's really like a self-education uh, process that happened when no one was being paid for it. And uh, mm. so, so that's, that's the family that I come from. And so, um, so growing up, you know, I was in the woods all the time every single family vacation was related to mushrooms somehow, some kind of mushroom conference. Um, And so, so a lot of times, a lot of time spent in the woods, certainly, and kind of absorbing these terms that I was hearing thrown around. And um, often I didn't want to be out there as a little kid, but as I got older, I started to really appreciate it. And, uh, and I'm really lucky to be in the spot that I am and have kind of access to the kind of uh, mycologist that I have access to. Um, so yeah, a lot of that was yeah foraging a ton of things uh, from the woods. In particular, um, my dad was really interested in medicinal mushrooms, and so harvesting conchs, turkey tails, all kinds of things, making tinctures in the kitchen. Cool. Uh, you know, tapping birch trees, making syrup, like kind of all of those kinds of things uh, really formed my identity. Um, and then when I was a teenager, I kind of had, was struggling with a bit of mental health problems and, um, and knew that if I started growing psychedelic mushrooms, my parents wouldn't be upset. <laughs> and so, so that was kind of maybe a way to, that I could uh, start to heal myself a little bit. And I had a really profound experience um, about a year after I started growing. And, and I think that really formed the identity of kind of almost who I am now. And, and it was other people might know it as a heroic dose. Mm. Um, I took, it was, it was really only, it was about four grams of albino penis ND um, in a tea. It's a large dose. Um, Yeah. So, so just drank that all at once. And, um, and if you ever experienced uh, ego death, you know, it's, 
um, you just you lose connection that you actually have a body or a name or friends or family and and you're just aware that you are consciousness and energy that exists and you are eminently connected to everything um and kind of the feeling that i got was like it's okay if i even die right now because my particles have always been here and they always will be um and so kind of coming out of that and for years later like you know, I'll say things like this Ikea table that my desktop is sitting on is my brother. Um, mm -hmm. But I really mean that, like, we are all from the same cell line uh, and all very connected. And so I think psychedelics really shed the light on that for me and how interconnected we are um, as humans to the world. Absolutely. And I, I hope that um, more and more people will become more open minded to that because it does it can sound um very woo woo and out there yeah. but you explained that beautifully and, and both of you guys have similar accounts um when you when you describe that and, and i also experienced the same thing where it's like that separation of that that conscious observer like you said harrison like like looking down upon yourself and your experiences and realizing like perhaps how not insignificant you are but uh yeah the, that that interconnectedness between all of us how how significant everyone is then you are now part of this like web of of eternity and consciousness and the universe and um it can really change your perspective on life and make you like value things that that uh, you, you couldn't see before necessarily or become more open-minded like I even believe to the extent of issues of race gender identity uh, all of those things that that we are constantly divided on um, by having one of those types of experiences at least in my experience helped me to kind of shed the the uh, the domestication that's that I received from society and these ideas that were taught to us in school and and um, yeah, it just really helped me become more open minded and, and more loving and feel more connected to everyone and everything, including the IKEA table uh, that exactly. you refer to as your brother. Yeah, I love that. That's beautiful, man. Mm. Cool, cool, cool. And so uh, John, what what are you doing now with that? Uh, with the you're you're cultivating. Um, do you have like uh, any goals for what you want to bring with this intentions? I know so you said I, you don't I, have an agenda when we talked about this, but you know, like an intention. Yeah, I do. I do have an intention, and it's to um, my personal intention is to spread that feeling of connection as mm. far as I can, um, and part of that is is really using sustainable cultivation methods um, as much as possible and plastic alternatives and things like that, because uh, what are you connected to if it's not the whole world? And so, um, so all of that matters. Yeah. So, so that's, that's kind of my overall goal um, is really spreading that feeling. Yeah. And how did you two meet? Um, um, I guess it would have been through a harm reduction society, really okay yeah yeah, yeah. uh <laughs> i guess so yeah yeah so um, yeah yeah so essentially um that uh like i guess less than five years ago i was um you know 
I guess this is pretty on topic considering we were just talking about uh, Vancouver's downtown east side, indigenous people and, and how they're struggling there. Um, Garrett, like I'm, I'm sure working as a counselor, you have some idea of what Vancouver's downtown east side is like, sure. or you've heard of it, yes. or it's, you know, it's, it's, um, uh, and like, it's one of the most populated and most addicted blocks in North America. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I like after kind of like going through uh, like a period of recovery, you know, getting clean, going through treatment, detox, yada, yada, yada. I, eventually, like I found my way into um, into volunteering on the downtown east side. For me, for a while, that was that was a big part of how I gained fulfillment, um, and that was also how you know I met other friends and through them, you know, through proxy, knowing other people, and one of them was John. So, oh, yeah, what a cool way to meet. So you guys were on a similar <laughs> path. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and I like that both of you guys have different, but. Uh, still parallel uh approaches and and things that you guys are doing that can uh contribute to assisting that population of people and uh, i'm very fascinated by both of those topics i definitely i would call myself like a beginner um mycologist i wouldn't even go as far as to say as mycologist but someone who engages in that hobby and uh love cultivating plants of all types especially uh psychoactive plants and um see the the true benefit i've seen the true benefit firsthand um of what it can do for relieving not only addiction but like those things that i mentioned earlier is like those uh biases and these uh prejudices that these things that it's not necessarily our fault that we may have them be part of our character it's just the way the way the world is and and society is and and it can be felt not only here in the united states but obviously up there with you guys too and um if you guys can find any way to uh help those people that are are in that area that you were just talking about uh and, and from a place of uh, personal experience, and there's nobody that, there's no better teacher than someone that who's who's been through it themselves, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And what what kind of impact did these experiences and this these hobbies personally have on John? Let's start with you. Your journey um so just the like the experience that i had kind of my uh ego death experience or um i'm just mean like as to put as opposed to who you were prior and uh who you are the growth what kind of growth have you seen since engaging in these kinds of things i think it's it's difficult for me to say because um my entire adult life has been entwined with psychedelics Mm. um i started growing um i believe that i was 17 and so so i've been growing for over a decade now and so so the growth was yeah i was intertwined with like personal development it's it's hard to separate out what was the yeah what was what yeah i see what you're saying See, for me personally, like I lost sight of those um, more psychedelic type experiences and became so engulfed in uh, harder drugs and substances that uh, I kind of forgot like what a powerful tool that was and being able to like rediscover it and, and dive back into it 
really assisted me for sure in that like looking at like you said earlier Harrison is like looking at my trauma from a different perspective as a conscious observer um so separating from myself especially like MDMA but I've seen it I've had it in in experiences with with LSD and psilocybin and uh yet to have experienced it with a mescaline ceremony but would like to and there's tons of this is a definitely a booming um movement here uh there's people that are offering it and and they're public about it too even though the legal the legality is kind of sketchy um there's people offering all kinds of ayahuasca ceremonies now and uh san pedro ceremonies so uh what is it like up there uh, when it comes to that kind of a like if you're searching for uh, something like this, how how do you go about finding it? Is it hard to find? Is it prevalent? Um, yeah, you're asking in in Canada. Uh-huh. Uh, are you talking about specifics in general, or like like active cacti, or yeah, just, just like uh, psychedelic ceremonies, or for or yeah, people offering those type of service, psychedelic therapy, even. So, um, from what I understand, uh, I have, I, I've talked to like uh, a couple different counselors about it, as well as like people that are, you know, trying to become patients for some kind of psychedelic therapy. Um, and from what I understand, if you're wanting to go through legitimate means because of how much of a gray area it sits in right now, mm-hmm. um, you're really going to have to dig. Um, mm. and in a way it's like, it's kind of weird because it's, it's unfortunate because like people that could really benefit from this almost have to go through like gray market means yeah um, in order to get in touch with with a counselor or some kind of uh, like registered therapist um, and in terms of sort of the more like shamanic esque practice around it um, I haven't seen a whole a whole lot in terms of people having ceremonies and stuff but I'm not really super involved in that community mm-hmm. um, uh, in general, I think it is fantastic to go into um, any kind of psychedelic experience with a sense of reverence, um, because I, I really believe that, like, you know, uh, maintaining a sense of like sacredness and being able to like revere these substances as, um, you know, essentially like a a channel um, to something greater. Uh, I, I think is that is like insurance, really. Like that will ensure that you have a positive, pleasant, pleasant experience. Yeah. Because um, not to go all like hoo ha hippie about this, but I do think that an individual's sort of like um, karmic, like inventory, very much plays a role. You know, like um, somebody who, to put it like black and white, sort of like like you know somebody who is a good person will either have like a good trip or a very like insightful trip that like shakes them but like comes to yield something positive you know so yeah yeah um but yeah in terms of it would be cool if there's more of that more of that going on because i think that that is in a way like having the spiritual practice with it that is a form of harm reduction um i would argue as well so Definitely. Um, I I would say that actually, like, I think the West Coast, uh, at least in Canada, is kind of a hotspot of of these kind of, you know, they are gray market practices uh, popping up. But I know that there's a lot of them where you can kind of they won't say that you're taking uh, psychedelic drugs, but they'll kind of have language that's alluding to it. Mm -hmm. And if you know what you're looking for, then you uh, you'll find it. Um, I mean, 
So I think like if if you're if there's anyone interested in, in the west coast of Canada, Googling is your best friend and you will likely find something actually. So yeah. Well, here in the States, we have uh, ketamine clinics that are almost nationwide now. And uh, I myself did two recently. I did two in the last few months. I got super, super depressed and like went into a really dark place. And that turned me like it pulled me right out of it. Um, They recommend that you do like if you're in even after like, say, a relapse or um depression and and suicidal thoughts is where the biggest impact has been with the ketamine here um and and the studies that they've done is it it almost like eliminates suicidal thoughts for a lot of people uh the majority of people that do it uh almost instantaneously and uh can have lasting effects from anywhere from six months to a year so it's not um it's not, it's definitely like a treatment, you know, um, and, and something that like needs to be maintained and a tool that is used in conjunction with therapy. And I recommend that like people, um, uh, do it in a space that offers it in conjunction with therapy, because there are a lot of sketchy clinics that will just hook you up and, uh, you know, leave you there and you have a pair of headphones maybe, but they don't talk to you. And this place in particular that I go to is uh, California Center for Psychedelic Therapy in Los Angeles. And it's like almost uh, Beverly Hills area. Um, They offer ketamine in conjunction with therapy and they offer integration therapy for use of psychedelics. And um, that is MAPS location for the MDMA study um, in this region. And I know that there's more places that they're doing. I believe they're trying to do it in Texas. They're doing it in Colorado for sure. And a few other places. Uh, do you guys have any of that going on up there? Uh, studies with these? Um, oh, for, like from what I understand, uh, a lot of it's pretty hush hush. It's happening, but it's happening sort of, okay. you know, on the down low. Okay. Um, I, I haven't had any experiences with it personally. There, there is like, there's a ton of work being done, I think, at all of the universities in Canada, kind of a little bit on the hush hush kind of, uh, you know, building their path to market, I suppose. Um, mm. um, yeah, and actually, sorry, you, you did have a really good point that you, it, you do want to be careful going to some of these gray market therapy uh, providers, because it, that is such a crucial part of the experience um, and having a set and setting and, and intention behind it as well. And sadly, there is a big problem in the psychedelic community um, with some of these centers, uh, you know, unfortunately preying on people actually when they're having these experiences. Um, And that's, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a vulnerable population for sure. Like those of us that are suffering with mental illness and can, can, could definitely be manipulated or taken advantage of. And, and, and it's not to say that, that this is like the only approach that we should only go to legitimate uh, places uh, that are, are sanctioned and legal uh, or headed in that direction. I do believe in recreational use of, of these types of substances for sure. And, can, and it can be done at home on your couch for sure. It can be mimicked. And um, I think having a trip sitter or a guide is super important someone you 100%. Trust. Yeah. yeah yeah totally totally um i think you know another thing as well like i um i had somebody explain this to me that you know i personally he's one of the most intelligent 
one of the most intelligent, you know, like people I've ever encountered. But he, the way he kind of explained it is that, um, you know, psychedelics at, at one point were very much, uh, you know, like at one point in man's history, were like very essential because, um, you know, we didn't have all of these things that um, sort of prompt us to realize what exists outside of our like immediate faculties. So like outside of our like, you know, sense of taste, touch, smell, like, People weren't walking around with smartphones. There's no TVs, you know. Right. There's no books. Even the average person could read. So, they they needed something to kind of like lull them, or in some ways force them into uh, realizing that there are other things that like exist outside of like tangible reality. Mm. Um, and and so, you know, he eventually went on to far to say that it's like you know we have all of these other things like you know, meditation and like human understanding of spirituality and all these things that we don't really need psychedelics anymore. I, that's kind of the cutoff point where I'm like, mm, you know, I think we're, we're kind of approaching a time like, you know, history repeats itself. And I think we're hitting a time where a lot of people feel uh, like a lot of millennials, you know, are, are really burning out. And yeah. when I say millennials, I don't really mean kids anymore. Like, I mean, people in their like thirties or forties, like these people that are probably dealing with mental health issues that are, reaching for psychedelic therapy are looking for some way to kind of like refresh their view of their internal world and thus like, you know, transforming their view of their external world. Right. So, um, but that being said, like, I still think that taking psychedelics in a way is like taking the back door. Right. Um, in, or, or, or like hopping the fence, as I've heard it explained to yeah. me versus things, you know, like meditation or like, finding a mode of spirituality or a spiritual community that you, you really jive with. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, sorry, this, this eventually goes back to what you're saying about the importance of having a trip sitter. Um, mainly because when people do these things, it's not, you know, normally in order to, um, to reach the type of like clarity or, or understanding that somebody would get after a trip, like it could take years and years and years of reading and years and years of meditation and, and like, you know, introspection and all of these things. But, some depending on the psychedelic like depending on your chemistry the setting and all that like you could be catapulted into like years ahead of your development yes and have no clue and it could be like so scary especially you know if you have all these other things that all these loose ends right that you you still need to tie up in terms of in terms of trauma or insecurities or you know anything they're from so it's yeah it's it's so important to, to have these harm reduction practices with these things for for them to be healthy and, and beneficial, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Now I want to get to the cultivation and sustainability, but I also want to talk cause you keep mentioning harm reduction for, for either of you guys, like harm reduction for me to me is like, okay, say you're a heroin addict, for example, and now you're only smoking cannabis. To me, that is a form of harm reduction and you are still a person in recovery in my book. Um, unfortunately in the world of treatment and uh aa and na and it's not to knock either of those programs because they're very useful tools uh however uh even something as simple as that uh switching to a less harmful uh substance for lack of a better term i which i don't think cannabis should even fall into that category i believe it's more of like a medicine but also uh there, there's forms of harm reduction that we're implementing here by uh, having needle exchanges, for example, uh, is a great tool and, it, and it's very controversial. However, it has been proven to, to help with uh, 
reduction in the spread of diseases like HIV and hepatitis C and, uh, you know, giving these people clean needles. And, and some people would look at it as enabling, but I, I don't look at it that way. I look at it as a form of harm reduction. Also, um, there are places now where there are supervised injection sites here in the States. Um, and by doing so, you are helping mostly the homeless population, but there are regular everyday people that are going into these sites and um, they supervise you while you use your substance of choice. And by doing so, you're preventing overdose uh, by a lot because not only do they have nurses on site, they can Narcan you, for example, if you're using opiates or they can activate like EMS called 911 and um, just even to the, the loneliness and the despair that comes with being an inactive addiction by going into a space that welcomes you and allows you to do your thing and is there for you and, and also offers it, they offer a solution. So that those people that are coming into these in supervised injection sites or shooting galleries, some, as some refer to it, um, they're given uh, pamphlets to treatment centers and, uh, pathways to housing and, and jobs and things like that. And, uh, maintenance medications even too, such as Suboxone or methadone, um, can be very useful tools that are frowned upon in society here, um, which I think are, are miracle medications because there are, um, hopeless cases of addiction that they just cannot abstain. They're just, they're, they're so far down the line and their trauma is so deep and they don't have the tools that, that they do, um, benefit from, from medications like that. And from programs like that, uh, Narcan programs, we have Narcan programs where they're handing out Nar Narcan in the streets. Now, what is that like harm reduction when you, as you guys would define it and are, are, uh, utilizing it? Um, I think it's, yeah, it's very similar up here uh, with needle exchanges um, mm -hmm. and shooting galleries, as, as you refer to them down there. Um, yeah, so so a lot of that is harm reduction. Harrison can certainly speak a lot more to this than I can. Um, uh, so I don't know if you wanted to jump in there, Harrison. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so like, so to put it plainly, this is what I believe is that um, when it comes to any kind of drug use, as soon as you're going off label by off label, I mean, there's no professional that's monitoring your dose. There's no one that's holding you for like any kind of accountability or anything. As soon as you go off label, you're taking a risk. Mm -hmm. doesn't matter what it is. Um, because like, I mean, even, even with pot for a lot of people, like I'm not, I'm not going to preach about the dangers of pot or anything. <laughs> that's not the platform for that. Um, but you know, like, um, and so like when it comes down to it, harm reduction is really an umbrella term, yeah. you know? Um, so like it, it applies to your average person that's having a drink, right? Every time you see a PSA on TV, that's like telling you to have a designated driver or telling you to drink responsibly, that's harm reduction. Yeah. Every time you walk into a bar, that's harm reduction, right? Mm. So it's um, all of these things exist culturally around certain substances that we're already comfortable with the biggest one being alcohol. Yeah. Um, but essentially what's happening right now is we, we have people that are, you know, seeing it for what it is and, and really trying to pioneer that, that understanding um, uh, towards people that are, you know, really struggling with, with harder drug use. And um, anybody that's in recovery would be able to tell you that, for many people trying 
to get clean, relapsing is a big part of the process. Yeah. And relapsing is where, when it comes to opiates, that's where most people are dying. Yeah. Is when they take the long break, you know, and they, they pick up their little bag of down and they get way more fent than they signed up for. And their tolerance is so much lower. Um, and so as long as we have some kind of safety net, you know, for people that are relapsing as well, it's like, it's so many lives saved. Um, and, you know, and a lot of people want to be like, oh, they're just junkies and be dismissive and that kind of thing. And in We're a way, enabling. I understand it. Like if you, yeah, exactly. Like if you're removed from it, but the same breath, it's like, this all boils down to like human potential. Like, I mean, so many people, I've met so many people from all walks of life that have struggled with drug use, yeah. you know, like I've been to rehab a couple times and, and the people that are in there are, there's a huge spread, you know, like depending on when you go in, but you know, there's a pretty big spread of, of, of people that are fresh off the downtown East side, you know, like track marks in their arms, they're wigging out, like, yeah. you know, they can't get their suboxone dose rate, whatever. And then you have people that are like, like one person that I went through treatment with was like a, a manager at a local university right um and was struggling with like really heavy drug use and it's like you know we can't really draw a line with these things because it affects such a broad spectrum of people yes everyday people for sure the businessmen and especially when it comes to like a substance like alcohol uh, which people seem to like try to separate uh alcohol from those other substances when in reality your body doesn't know the difference between whether it came from a liquor store it came from uh someone off the street a drug dealer off the street or if it came from your doctor that wrote the prescription your body does not know the difference at the end of the day you're putting a foreign sure. substance into yeah. your body that is going to be harmful and come with some kind type of risk and with when it comes to the addiction potential especially too it's like we are no different if you if you have a problem with alcohol you are no different than that person that is on the street you know injecting drugs and if we can if we can bridge that gap and get people to see it I, I do think that that's a change in the world that i'd like to see uh, is compassion towards addicts and, and instead of shunning and punishing them and putting them in prison um having things like harm reduction like we're talking about yeah yeah um, um also just to just to backtrack a little bit because i mean psychedelics are pretty big theme here um yeah. My perception, like of like where harm reduction plugs into psychedelics, um, is essentially that you know um, when it comes to especially with what John was saying, like with the heroic dose, mm -hmm. um, stakes can get pretty high. You know, if it's that one trip, and I've noticed it's more so with tryptamines, uh, like especially with mushrooms, but like you know acid as well, um, and you know to an extent DMT, where it's like there's kind of well for me personally, there, there's like this kind of like heavy disconnect that happens briefly, um, like between my immediate faculties and just between like my reality. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and that can be super scary and it can also come with a lot of liability for somebody that isn't experienced with these things as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's also where the harm reduction model comes in. Education, well, right? so, uh, education and informing yeah. the public of, of, the risk that can come with those things too, right? Yeah. Mm. John, did you have something on that too? Yeah, well, I just wanted to say sort of an edge case for in terms of harm reduction, you know, I've even heard it described by a fairly high ranking harm reduction worker that 
one method is so we have all of these people that are dying from fentanyl yeah well one harm reduction method is if you were to grow poppies and extract uh stuff out of that and provide that to them instead yeah. that is harm reduction you know what i mean it's it yeah so so it can come in all kinds of forms um i think harrison had a really good point though and especially in the psychedelic space education is super important because with all of the media attention that this has nowadays um you know it's twofold it may it sheds a lot of light on this and so it's good that a lot of new eyes are on it but it also means that people uh start to think it's more you know well it is safe but people start to think that it's you know it's very commonplace and kind of accepted and they might not be aware of some of the harms and risks that might come because it's like well everyone's talking about it you know what I mean yeah. everyone's doing it and so but there's you know you still do have to take all of that into account even me I've been taking psychedelics for 10 years but set and setting and intention are still very important to me when I do so yeah, yeah. yeah. There's yeah. it comes with challenges for sure, and it can be a very difficult experience, and maybe even regretful for some people if they go into yeah. it with the wrong at the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong intention and wrong people. So, yeah, I think that's right. beautiful. Um, so now, as you guys are both cultivating, uh, both are cultivating some type of psychedelic uh, substance. Uh, I know you wanted to, to bring sustainability, the topic of sustainability. Uh, John, you want to go ahead and, and jump in on there? Um, what what are some, some of the processes that you're doing and, and what does the future look like to you in, in the space of cultivation of psilocybin? Sure. So, so I'm a fan of using things from your own country or locale um, so that you, you know, it, whatever you're doing, whatever industry, hopefully you can use uh, source materials and feedstocks that are from your own country. Mm. So growing mushrooms on core is very popular and that's what a lot of people do. Um, I might get hate for this. It's my personal belief that if you're in Canada, you shouldn't be anywhere near uh, core growing. And it's just based on, you know, we have a lot of feedstocks that you can probably drive 20 minutes to the country and you can pick up some horse manure for free, mm. um, make friends with a farmer, look at a horse rather than you know putting things on an ocean tanker and sending them here um just to throw it in the landfill after um so so that's kind of where i come from from sustainability as, in terms of that because it's it's really that's what most of mushroom cultivation is in terms of inputs is the, the actual substrate that it's grown on mm. um and and there's then that, that's actually twofold is that you know mushrooms is especially cubensis mushrooms they love manure they're manure lovers and so they naturally grow on it and so i don't understand why you wouldn't use that um mm, mm, mm. in terms of something else and it's actually proven by lab results that you you get a potency boost if you are using manure and so so i think it, it's twofold um so is that is that what, what type like what type of medium are you using generally when it comes to psilocybin it so I grow on only horse manure. Okay. Wow. Um, and so I kind of, I've, um, I have an eye for manure now and, uh, <laughs> I built a shed to kind of process it and cure it properly and, um, built a pasteurizer to, to pasteurize it up to the proper temperatures. And, and, uh, and with that, you know, 
the nice thing is that it comes with all of these microbes that exist in the wild. Mm. Um, and, and some of those can be beneficial to the mycelium when you're actually uh, cultivating. So the thermophiles, which are the, the heat loving bacteria, those are left over after you pasteurize. And uh, there's a bit of evidence, mostly anecdotal, that uh, they really help uh, the mycelium take a hold of the substrate and kind of protect it against trichoderma. And so that's fantastic. I mean, that makes sense that it, that mimicking uh, how it would grow in habitat or naturally um, from the earth would be the best way to do it, right? Yeah, <laughs> that, totally. As it goes with uh, organic foods, uh, anything that you're you're consuming uh, for your body, I, I would think that 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 would be the best approach, and it makes sense. Uh, I personally have only grown from grain. So I'm now I'm interested to uh, dive deeper into this home. Hopefully that will inspire other people to uh, also, because there, there's a big myco boom as well right now, right? Right. So sorry, I, sh I should actually say that. So grain is definitely like you, you pretty much have to use grain spawn. Mm -hmm. um, there's a few ways you could get around it, but, but so I do use grains as well. So it's, so you use grain spawn with, um, with your actual substrate. Okay, so you're okay. So you're you're spawning in grain and then transferring to uh, manure mix Absolutely. substrate. Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. I'm like I said, um, I'm very novice. So yeah. Oh, on that note, I'm curious. Can you go directly from agar to uh, to manure, or there has to be there has to be the uh, grain? You you technically could if you were to like ster fully sterilize your manure. Um, it's it's just that there's a lot of different, uh, there's a lot of surface area in, in something like that. So to actually get it fully colonized to the point that you can break it up um, and expand it to another substrate, it, you would just be leaving all these kinds of pockets of nutrients that might not be mm. colonized fully. Um, and if you were to spawn that, you know, it's pretty easy to knock something off of that. Whereas the grains, I think, are, they kind of have these ridges on them that hold onto the mycelium a little bit. Mm. Um, as you're knocking around and so because anytime you know th that's really the point you need to have it fully colonized so that trichoderma has no chance of gaining a foothold on any of the kind of nutrients that you've laid out now for the layman people uh trichoderma is what now sorry yeah so trich it? i know it's like so a trichoderma disease, yeah so tr trichoderma is a mold and it's i'm sure most people have seen it it's a green sporulating mold uh there's a lot of green sporulating molds, but it's uh, it's really the primary uh, pest in mushroom cultivation. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so that's what we're all fighting against. And it'll destroy a, a flush, right? Yeah, it's uh, like it's it's insane how nature built it. Like it has 10 ways to just absolutely decimate any other mycelium. It's it's very interesting. Um, it's it's known as a faculative parasite um of of uh well any mycelium actually and so so yeah quite quite interesting how it does that and so now you mentioned earlier foraging um are all, not only are you foraging but are you also cultivating other types of medicinal mushrooms because that's something i'm really trying to push here too is, is get people to start supplementing not only supplementing but also just in getting into their diet uh these various other mushrooms that are now becoming more commonplace in in the supermarkets even uh such as turkey tail uh chaga reishi those types of things 
So I, I don't grow for consumption because I have, um, I have friends that do a much better job at sourcing uh, for the medicinal mushrooms and kind of make extracts. And so, mm -hmm. so when I do consume those, it's not something that I've grown, but it is something that uh, friends have kind of done for me. So. Mm, and do you, can, can you outline at all um, any of the benefits that maybe you've seen or that you're aware of from consuming these medicinal mushroom extracts? There's so, there's so many mushrooms and so many benefits uh, to be spoken of, I think. And so uh, the one that was really hammered into me growing up uh, was conchs, uh, turkey tails, and, and um, polypore mushrooms that grow specifically on birch trees, actually. Mm. Um, and those, those have a lot of cancer-fighting properties. Um, and other beneficial things in that. Um, and so, so that's really one that I can kind of speak to. Mm -hmm. um, and other than that, you know, I don't, I don't have a ton of experience with using a lot of other ones and actually, um, I guess, experiencing an effect from it. But yeah, well, I certainly have seen a lot of studies currently out on the effect that some of these medicinal mushrooms can have even on preventing and uh, kind of healing HPV, human, human papillomavirus, uh, believe okay. it or not. And yes, preventing and uh, helping get people's cancer to a manageable or into remission in conjunction with uh, regular therapies, of course. Uh, I know that Paul Stamets talked about in that Netflix special. He really pushed uh, how he believes that uh, I, I think turkey tail, chaga, reishi, all of those mushrooms um, helped his mom recover and get into remission with cancer. And did you guys know which which show I'm, which movie I'm documentary I'm talking about? It's fantastic fungi. Fantastic fungi. Yes, I highly recommend that if you're interested and you're hearing these things and it sounds unbelievable to you. I mean, Paul Stamets is one of the leading voices for sure when it comes to this topic and uh, definitely recommend that or checking out uh, Jeff Chilton. I did an episode with him and that's awesome. Thank you so much for bringing this topic to the show, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks. Harrison, what do you got for cultivation and sustainability when it comes to peyote? Okay. Yeah. Um, where do we start? This has been, um, okay. I don't even know like where to begin with this uh so there's a few things uh one of them is yeah locally sourced um you know substrate i think it's huge mm -hmm. um you, what you'll notice in in the in the peyote or in the cactus community the majority is a lot more focused on um growing these things to keep them looking nice in their collection mm -hmm. so a lot of people are really just you know it's not much of an agricultural focus it's more so of like of like an eccentric like collector slash like you know hobbyist botanist kind of thing sure um and so yeah i think like once you start looking into cult like once you start working into like an agricultural approach to uh to growing peyote it, it becomes a lot different um mainly because so what i have going on right now is lots of grafting um <laughs> hence the username graph punk mm -hmm. uh but yeah grafting is a big part of propagation um, and that is mainly for vegetative growth. So uh, essentially what, what I have going on 
Sorry, I guess just to back up with the substrate, because like I can tie this in with what John was saying. Go for it. Um, a lot of people will be spending, like hobbyists will be spending, collectors will be spending like crazy amounts of money, you know, to get like these top shelf sort of mix-ins. You know, you have things like uh, zeolite or like a very fine, like washed scoria, like, you know, like a black, like volcano rock or, um, you know, like you have, uh, you know, or even, um, I say zeolite. Yeah, Akadama is another big one. Yeah. Um, but you know, like when it comes down to it, like these plants are fighters. They will grow in virtually anything. Mm -hmm. Um, and they have certain preferences for different things. You know, like a lot of their habitat sits on a pumice deposit, uh, like a massive pumice deposit. Um, and so yeah, pumice pumice is pretty big. Pumice is pretty cheap to like source locally around here. Um, another thing as well, it's like kind of a funny anecdote in regards to substrate. I spent so much time looking on the internet, like reading up on loam and different kinds of loam and how, um, just how, you know, how, how nutrient dense it is and how, when it's like wild, it has an excellent microbiota. And I was so frustrated because I spent all this time trying to find loam and then I got like read up enough to identify it and I go and dig into one of my garden beds and I'm like out back and I'm just like, holy shit, this is what I've been looking for this whole time. Wow. Um, so yeah, I mean, a big part of my, my soil is just soil in my backyard. Of course, you know, I treat it and stuff like that. Like I'll, I'll dig it up and then, uh, sift it, take up any like bugs or anything like that, let it sit in the sun for a bit. Um, but yeah, loam, fantastic. Um, wow. and we're sitting on tons of it here in BC, super fertile. Um, Another thing is, uh, like less than a 15 minute drive from my place, there's a nursery that sells crushed chip rock. Mm. And so this is a perfect mix of granite and limestone, which are, you know, two minerals that are like highly abundant in Coyote's natural habitat, mm -hmm. especially cause like, um, you know, from what I've seen and read, I'm, I'm not an expert on the matter, but like, like what, like what I've seen and read, like a lot of the time you'll notice um, you'll notice more so like your false peyotes, like your diffuses, your, uh, frickies or, or what have you, mm -hmm. um, are, are sitting further down. Um, and they're kind of the ones that are more like growing in the mud. Mm -hmm. Um, but then when you go a little further up, when you start to notice in like, in like cracks and crevices where all the like heavy granite is, that's where you're going to be finding a lot of the peyote. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, granite and limestone, huge part of my, my mix, um, and so, yeah, I mean, again, people will pay all this money for these prepared substrates, but it's like, I go to ArtNap, like 15 minutes away from my place, I get a tractor scoop for four bucks, wash it, sift it. And there's like a huge chunk of my substrate right there for like five bucks and some labor. So, um, yeah, that's part of it. Uh, another thing is everybody knows that peyote is a very slow grower. Mm -hmm. um, and so there are ways around that. Um, it's a slow grower, but I actually think that it has a, a, a bit of a faster metabolism than, than the average person realizes from what I've noticed with grafting. Um, because if you get, you know, like a good peri stock, good, like, uh, Prescopsis, um, you know, that's roughly three eighths inches or bigger and you graft a seedling onto it that was germinated. I mean, if you want to, if you want to go hard, you can, you can germinate it less than, or you can graft it less than 24 hours of germination. Mm. Um, which I've done successfully. Wow. Um, 
And so, but it's, you know, your success rate and just ease of work is going to be a bit better if you wait a few weeks to a month, I find. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, lots of, lots of seedling grafting. Um, I like to get stuff in Paris. Uh, and so with all the stuff I've been testing, you know, I've, I've been able to get uh, a fist size cluster in less than about five months. Yeah. Yeah. Two to three from, years of growth. Two to three years of growth in one year is something I've heard before. Something like yeah, that. I mean, because if you want to talk purely vegetative growth, like we're talking, we're talking like purely vegetative growth in the wild. Not exactly an accurate, like a fair comparison, I would say, but yeah, probably like probably close to even 15 or 20 years wow. in like less than a year. Um, wow. But yeah, it, it just goes to show how harsh those conditions are for peyote in the wild, right? Um, so yeah, there's vegetative growth, but what you're gonna find is um, if you don't have your feed and you don't have your lights uh, and your substrate like all dialed in, you're just gonna be getting these balloons. Like you're gonna, these just, I'm sure you've seen them on social media and stuff like, and. Um, you know, I'm trying to find ways to make my grass look less bloated yeah. and more compact, more flat faced, um, have more defined ribs. Yeah. Cause those, those are the qualities that, um, are a result of, of, uh, like hormetic stress, um, in, in, in the peyote. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's one thing. And so basically want my way around that, because, uh, my way around that is to focus on the vegetative growth in the beginning. Right. So get it as big as you can, regardless of what it looks like. Just get a mutant cluster, right? Mm -hmm. Cut it down and then um, have it sit either on an all mineral substrate or um, I've been putting it on parchment as like just a part of this distressing period. And I'm still trying to figure out how long it takes. Um, I, I need to have some way of like being able to field test for alkaloid levels or be able to triangulate with some kind of lab or something to confirm this. Because um, all of my work is based off of bioassay right now. And, um, and so, yeah, essentially, you know, you have this big cluster and then you can cut it down. Uh, if it's really nice, I like to throw it on a trike, you know, keep those nice genetics on ice kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, yeah, from there, um, cold stress is a big thing. So, you know, leaving the grass out, um, in the cold, which we have a lot of in Canada, which is great. Um, so yeah, the cold stress, you get it to harden off a bit, cut it down. And then I've been working on um i call it my stress tent um or one of my friends calls it the angry psychedelic vegetable tent <laughs> um and so basically what it is is it's this sort of like far spectrum light right so you have um you have like heavy uh uvb exposure um and heavy like infrared exposure on the other end that is really stressing these lights out or really stressing these plants out um and just based off of bioSA, I've noticed pretty significant jumps of um, after like less than a week of leaving it in this tent with this light cycle. Um, jumps in in what in particular levels? I'll, okay, so you are testing yourself. Yes, yeah, yeah, very very like small doses, but um, yeah, I can generally, I'm you know, I have like a bit of like a bit of a taste for it. I can generally tell when when a cactus has alkaloids. Like I said, like. I need to triangulate with some chemists um, yeah. and, and start getting some real testing done. Um, but yeah, I definitely think that uh, light stress, light and cold stress are two very big parts of uh, alkaloid development in a cactus. That's fascinating stuff, man. And it makes sense because in habitat, you have those drastic changes in, 
in uh, light and temperature for sure. In the de- in the desert, and drought, it's, sorry. yeah, drought's another drought. Thing as well. Yeah, right. Yeah, you got that. You've got all that, all of that uh, constantly changing with dra- drastic drops, dramatic drops in temperature at night, and then extremely hot temperatures during the day, followed by torrential rains. <laughs> you know, so that's so cool. That's really pioneering stuff, man. I haven't really spoken to anyone in particular especially on the podcast that is doing this type of work so uh i'm fascinated to see what comes out on the other end of this and um if anyone hears this and is like dude i want you know i have a friend that's uh he was on the podcast his name is patrick he's uh he's a uh plant biologist and something or other went to berkeley studied plant biology and uh tests for alkaloids uh for a cannabis company um and he has done some testing on trichosirius and fa- found that uh, a pc patchenoy in quotation marks was uh, actually active in in a similar way to um a in comparison i believe he had like a a trout specimen a keeper trout specimen and a pc patchenoy and the alkaloid levels ended up being very similar um, and mm-hmm. I was actually told once that you can stress a PC into becoming uh, more active and having a higher alkaloid content. And that's a, an area of contention in the cactus community for sure. Um, yeah, I, I think I actually listened to that episode. I really enjoyed it, by the way. Microscope Mystic. Yes. That's what you're referring to. Yeah, yeah. Super knowledgeable guy. Um, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Um, but yeah, yeah, I just wanted to say that from what I have seen just in my experience is that um, obviously genetics play a big role because I've noticed name cultivars that I've grown um, have been way more potent earlier on than, you know, taking cuttings from mature PC. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that being said, I definitely think that when it comes to uh, potency in cacti, you've also interviewed Tony Santaro. <laughs> um, and, you know, he, he likes to say in his videos that, you know, cacti are like batteries. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think that that really testifies to how they produce alkaloids, mm. mainly because, um, you know, it, it can and will consistently produce alkaloids while it's in the ground, as long as it's met with the stressors um, for those conditions, right? Like for it to produce it. Um, but I think that um, there's a certain sort of, how could I say it? there's a certain sort of like uh, cap that's gradually going up for alkaloid uh, production, like potential alkaloid production uh, alongside vegetative growth. Mm. So if you like power grow a cactus out, like you get it on a, on a Perry and just have it grow like a, just stupid, you know, like insane amounts of, I mean, you've seen Perry graphs, they, they go nuts yeah. compared to on their own roots. Right. So it's like, if you're growing something like that out, then you're going way up with the vegetative growth. Um, but that also just means that the ceiling for the alkaloid production is going up as the vegetative growth is going up. So you cut it, and then after you cut it, that's when it can really start producing alkaloids. You know, mm. even just the stress from cutting will uh, prompt see. it to release the hormones for for that response, right? So um, yeah, you can just kind of keep going and going. And I'm really curious to see um, if you can just, you know, I, I'm also curious because now that you mentioned PC. Um, to see if I can just go to a garden center 
and take like a big tip cutting and throw it in this stress tent I got going on and see if that's going to make a difference. I think it um, very well may. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's a possibility. And, you know, so from what I understand with this whole like PC being not really being potent and stuff, this is pretty anecdotal. I would say that it's more so speculation, but there are some growers out there that actually think that um, the PC that we see floating around right now is actually a hybrid um, mm. that is like intergenous. So it's between Trichocerus and Sirius. Like that's that's what some people think. And that's part of the reason why they expect that the, the ribs come out a little further than your regular Pachinoi. And they have, um, you know, more like upward facing um, aerials as well that mm. are sort of like reminiscent of the Sirius cactus. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm I, I'm not sure, but I think that could be part of the reason why people think that the potency is a lot lower. Um, yeah. But yeah, aside from the fact that when they're in garden centers, they really don't get nearly as much light as they would if they were, you know, like outside or something. So that could yeah. play another role. I'm not sure. Fascinating stuff. I feel like I could talk to both of you guys all day long. However, I do <laughs> I do have to wrap up because I got my final my final maps call is today so i'll be done with the study for good and uh i'm i'm just really looking forward to the the doorway that i think that this episode can open because now um i'm reaching into canada first of all uh, i've now expanded further into mycology and uh, a more scientific approach i believe to uh, cacti cultivation and uh, i appreciate both your guys' knowledge and thank you for reaching out to me i'm really glad we did this if you guys have more people more ideas um if you'd like to to dive deeper and have because this was very spontaneous for the listeners we just planned this like last week i think right yeah. a few days ago yeah something like that yeah. <laughs> pretty impromptu yeah and uh, i would love to see what else we can do together and look forward to future collaborations you guys i would love yeah, to yeah yeah that would be very amazing. Cool. Yeah. yeah, it was awesome to talk to you. Yeah, cool stuff, guys. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks oh, for having me on the show. I, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I appreciate it. So last minute. Yeah, man. Anytime. All right. Cool. We got John yeah, and we got right. Graph Punk, also known as Harrison. If everyone could please like, review, and subscribe to the podcast and hit that share button, I would appreciate that greatly. And please click on the link to a fundraiser I am organizing currently. All right, I'm going to lay down an intro, you guys, and uh, I'll get this out there. There's not awesome. going to be any editing because um, we didn't have any hiccups. So Nice. Cool. cool. All right, guys, have a great day. All right, all right. Hey, you too. Cheers. Cheers.